0: Thank you, Pastor Mark, and uh, we certainly want to covenant to pray for Mark and Pastor Chad and others that are suffering with these respiratory bugs and that they'll get over those and that they won't be too generous in sharing them with us. And uh, so if I don't hug and kiss you, please don't take it personal. All right. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been walking through this wonderful epistle by the Apostle Peter, and uh, today, Lord willing, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6, and so in chapter 4 of First Peter, we'll look at uh, verse 1, and we'll read for a portion there, First Peter chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of Gentiles, whom we walked in licentiousness, lust, drunkenness, revilers, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this text that has been so perfectly preserved by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for for centuries, and Lord, to think that these words by the Apostle Peter encouraged Christians in a very difficult time in that first century. Lord, we also know that because the Word of God is living and powerful, That it continues to inspire and instruct and encourage and comfort God's people in this 21st century. So Lord, I pray that you would empower me, anoint me to be able to preach this message, to expound upon and to exposit this text in a manner that it would help us to understand the historical context and appreciate it, but also find application in our lives today in the world in which we live. My humble prayer, Lord, if there's anyone here in this congregation that has yet to experience the divine call of God upon their life, calling them away from a a wasted, futile life of sin and to a fruitful life of godliness to be saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, oh God, I pray that if that is your will, that they would experience that call of grace upon their life and that you would give them faith, divine faith to believe upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God and know that your blood, Lord Jesus, paid the price for the sins of all who will call upon your name and Lord, with that, they receive eternal life and the blessed hope of heaven. Lord, we simply pray, your will be done in this service in Jesus name we pray and the people of God said Amen Amen it's certainly no secret that Christians in every era, era have suffered to some degree or another in some manner or another and in reading and studying this text and in and, and the epistle of 1 Peter in general it's interesting because some commentators will indicate that the intensity of the of the suffering of the first century believers there in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire that Peter is writing to those Christians that, that, that they're suffering at this point very severe persecution and yet other commentaries say well no at the time of the writing of the epistles of first and second of Peter the, the suffering that these Christians are enduring uh, is primarily social Suffering, if you will. In other words, suffering, religious persecution, if you will, or, or social, uh, economic shunning, or uh, maybe being ostracized or ridiculed or rumors started. All painful, no doubt about it. Simply because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it though. By the time that John is penning the Revelation, just a few decades, the intensity of persecution has for sure been ramped up. Because we know historically that the Roman Emperor Nero has turned his full vengeance upon those followers of Christ, making them somewhat of a scapegoat. So now Christians, by the time of John's writing, are not suffering just socially, religiously, economically, being ostracized or shunned or rumors started about them, but they're being killed for their faith as they become the target of political persecution. So probably there's that transition going on. Christians are seeing the level of the intensity of persecution and suffering aimed at them beginning to increase but it's interesting because the the implication of Peter's letter to the Christians is when you suffer for the sake of righteousness and that's what we're going to focus upon believers suffering in for righteousness enduring in suffering for righteousness there's a difference we all the world suffers because all the world is under the curse of sin And even the the Apostle Paul talks about how even all of creation groans under the curse of sin. All people suffer. Suffer from war and suffer from diseases and suffer from accidents and suffer from uh, relational breakups and on and on and on. All people suffer. But uniquely, Peter is writing to those who are followers of Christ who are suffering for righteousness sake. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, it's not a secret. If you are a dedicated Bible-believing, faithful follower of Christ, you will suffer. Suffering comes with faithfulness to Christ. And so as we look at the first two verses there in chapter 4, I want us to focus upon what I've termed as the believer's motivation. And suffering for righteousness. You say, wait a minute. I'm usually motivated to get away from suffering. I'm, you know, I'm not one that endures pain. I'm not one that looks for pain. What do you mean by motivation for suffering? And Peter is not saying you should run from or reject or hide from suffering for your faith. He's actually saying, listen, you have motivation To be willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And one of the first motivations that he gives is the perfect example of Jesus Christ which inspires us. And that's what he says there in verse 1. Therefore, and you know, he's pointing back because he's already talked about the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, He suffered. He suffered ultimately. And so as we look at the suffering of Christ. We go back to chapter 2, verse 21, where Peter says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Listen, if you want to know how to handle suffering for righteousness, just look at Christ. Follow his example. He's given you a perfect example. Follow his steps. But not only that, as Peter is writing in beginning in verse 1 therefore he's pulling him back into chapter 3 we just looked at in a previous message in verse 18 again for Christ also suffered and I might add that some translations insert the word died Christ suffered no doubt about it he suffered emotionally he suffered uh, physically and not only was he tortured But Christ even died for Christ going back to verse 18 of chapter 3 for Christ also suffered once for sins The just for the unjust why that he might bring us to God Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit So now going back to chapter 4 verse 1 Peter says therefore since Christ suffered for us in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same mind have the mind of Christ, like Paul talks about in, 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 in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, have this mind which first was in Christ. Have the same attitude of Christ. Now, we'll never be able to perfectly imitate Jesus, but we find a wonderful example given to us in Christ in how we face suffering for the sake of righteousness, which Christ modeled perfectly for us. I go back to Hebrews realizing that, our pastoral team will be preaching through this wonderful book of the Bible. But but I would direct your attention to, if it, uh, to Hebrews chapter 5, talking about the sufferings of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 5 of Hebrews, ch- uh, verse 7 and 8. He says, speaking of Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, speaking of God, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience, look, by the things which he suffered. Jesus' obedience to the will of God cost him, cost him dearly. But Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, look, Christ didn't come into this world and get blindsided by the rejection of mankind. He wasn't caught off guard because he suffered. He knew when he came into this world and laid aside the privileges of deity in heaven and came and took on the, the limitations and the humiliations and the frustrations of the flesh of humanity. He knew he would suffer. He knew he would suffer ultimately. And Peter says, look to him, to Christ. Therefore, pointing back, Jesus suffered. He suffered for a reason. He suffered for a purpose. He suffered for a mission. He suffered to fulfill the perfect will of God. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 verse 21 when he tells us about the great exchange. He, God made him Christ who knew no sin, to become sin for us. I don't think we even begin to wrap our minds around the magnitude of what that wo- those words say that the perfect sinless son of God Christ we take on sin our sin so that we might inherit the righteousness of God folks let me tell you something there is no way to be righteous other than in Christ It never comes through works. It won't come through religion. It won't come through rituals. It's only in Christ Jesus. And if you're not found by the Father in Christ, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ with your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not righteous. And if you're not righteous in the sight of holy God, you will be expelled from His presence for eternity. Oh, Jesus suffered. And He suffered for a divine purpose from which we are the ones who benefit. He's the perfect example. And I think about Christ, how he never defended himself. He never tried to fight back. He was like a lamb that the, the prophet Isaiah tells us, tells us that was led to the slaughter. Not even opening his mouth in his own defense. He could have called down legions of powerful supernatural angels to absolutely obliterate the Roman Empire. But he understood the purpose of his suffering was for lost, depraved, helpless, hopeless sinners like you and me. Now listen, we have the example, the perfect example of Christ realizing that when we are called by God to follow His perfect, righteous principles, there will be times of suffering. It doesn't come without a cost. Peter knew what suffering was about. We find the example of Peter. Peter knew suffering firsthand. When we walk through the book of Acts, you may recall that Peter, in chapter 4 of Acts, was arrested, he and John, simply for preaching the the truth of the gospel. He was warned and threatened and then released. And then later, not only were Peter and John, but in chapter 5, Peter, John, and all the apostles were arrested. Why? Because they were preaching the gospel that they had been forbidden by the Sanhedrin to preach. And therefore, they were, again, they were threatened. They were beaten. They were warned. They were thrown in prison. And yet, they kept on preaching. In chapter 12 of Acts, we know that Peter again suffered when Herod... The emperor of that time, the ruler, a governor of that time, had just martyred James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he saw how it pleased the Jews of that time, so he went and had Peter arrested. And he was fully intending to have Peter executed. And so there's Peter again. I can imagine poor Peter had a criminal record. You're talking about having a jail record. Peter says, oh, here we are again. Back in prison. Why? Because he was faithful to preach the word of God. Peter understood suffering. But you know, none of that caught Peter off guard. Because all the way back in the Gospel of John. You may recall that incident. Jesus and his resurrected body appeared there at the shore of Lake the, the Sea of Galilee, Peter and his buddies were out fishing. Again, Jesus performed a wonderful miracle of fishing. They caught multitudes of fish. Peter realized it was Jesus on the shore, swam the shore. He and the rest of the disciples had breakfast that Jesus prepared. Jesus pulled Peter aside and recommissioned him, you may recall, with the three I love yous. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? But do you know that, that that time before that conversation was over in John chapter 1, Peter said to, Jesus said to Peter, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And biblical scholars tell us that Jesus was in essence telling Peter prophetically, Peter You're going to die for the cause of the gospel. Not only will you die. You will die by means of crucifixion. And church tradition tells us that indeed the apostle Peter was crucified. But at his request. Asking that he not be crucified in the same form that Christ the Lord was crucified. Peter requested to be crucified upside down. Having witnessed his own wife's execution prior to that. Oh listen. Peter understood suffering for the cause of righteousness. And not only did he point the believers of that time to the perfect example of Christ, Peter was also lifting up himself and saying, Listen, if you follow Christ, there will be suffering. He remembered vividly those words that Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 verse 23 as he was issuing the call. And let me tell you something, the call hasn't changed. The culture has tried to to water down what it means to be a Christian. Our humanistic culture has infiltrated churches that have bought into this false notion that joining the church and being a Christian is simply like joining a religious country club. And you do it at your convenience and you serve as you want to and you make it for your pleasure and in your enjoyment and your entertainment. Folks, that's nothing but a lie. I'll tell you what Jesus said to Peter and James and John and he says to every person wishing to be a member of the eternal kingdom of God, and to be in heaven one day, Jesus says, if any man or woman come after me, let them deny themselves. Take up their cross. Folks, the cross. He didn't say take up your comfortable easy chair. Take up your cross and follow me daily. Implication is if you choose to walk with me by faith, you will suffer. Suffer for the sake of Righteousness. So the motivation that Peter was raising up for the people, for that he was writing to the believers of that first century, and I believe he's speaking to Christians of the 21st century. Listen, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, be motivated by the perfect example of Jesus and then the, the, the lesser example of the apostles and, and the martyrs all down through history. Listen, we are also motivated by the desire to do the will of God the Father. Why else would we be motivated? We want to please God. And if God is calling us to follow His Son and to be willing to suffer, then that is the will of God. That should be the driving force of every one of us. Following after Christ's example means rejecting sin and rejoicing even in death if necessary. Are you willing to die for the cause of Christ? That sounds so foreign in western 21st century culture. <laughs> Die. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I could take you on a jet. I don't know if I would or not. But I could take you halfway across the globe into a country like Sudan or Syria. Syria or take you into North Korea, or or let you venture into Iraq. And, And that same question would be very applicable. It would be a very relevant question to ask of a person exploring the Christian faith. You would honestly say to them, listen, are you willing to die to follow Christ? That's what it means to be a Christian. And that day may come to the West one day. I don't know but it could throughout his earthly ministry Jesus made it clear that his ultimate motivation in life his modus operandi was to do the will of God that was the driving force of the life of Christ that's what drove him to endure the humiliation and the rejection and, 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 and the, the pain of the suffering. And his, that's what drove Him all the way to the cross. When He knelt and, and prayed before God in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and was in such agony, understanding the full weight of all the sin of mankind placed upon His shoulders on the cross and what He would endure. And He and he prayed, "Oh Father, if there's any way that this cup Can be removed from my lips. Yet not my will but thy will. Jesus told his disciples in John's Gospel chapter 4 verse 34. How many of us can can repeat this? How many of us can connect with this? When Jesus told his disciples. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. My nourishment. My motivation is to do the will of the one who sent me. And therefore the Christian's goal is to live a life of holiness. Because that is the will of God. Go with me back to verse 2. Peter says that he, speaking of the Christian, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. We suffer for righteousness sake. So that we do not find ourselves caught up in a lifestyle of sin. And the disciple who lives by faith. The follower of Christ who lives by faith. Will indeed find themselves. Facing the temptation to fall back into a life of sin. But those of us who have died to sin. We have died to sin. We no longer live in the flesh or for the flesh, but we live to to choose to live a life of godliness. As we'll see, this commitment to holiness, this commitment to lo- to holiness and holy living, it'll elicit some very negative responses from those who are unregenerated. Be prepared. when you make the commitment to turn your back on sin, In sinful ways, in sinful habits, in sinful relationships, you will encounter suffering. But understand, that's what God's will is for all of us, is to turn our backs absolutely on the life of sin. As we look at that and understand, Peter goes on in verses 3 and 4, and and, and he helps us to see not only the, the believer's motivation for suffering for righteousness, but the believer's challenges. So you make the decision. So you commit to do the will of God. So you determine that you're going to follow Christ no matter what. understand, understand there will be many painful, sometimes, challenges in suffering for righteousness. Look what Peter says in verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of Gentiles... When we walked in licentiousness, lust, in other words, sexual obsession, and it makes me think about the the, the sexual revolution that has so embraced our culture and and infiltrated our culture today. All types of sexual perversions that seem to rule the minds of, of seemingly thinking people today. People in prominent positions When we walked in licentiousness and lust, drunkenness, revelries, nothing but orgies, drinking parties and abominable idolatries, bowing down to fake pagan gods, Peter's not writing to the lost of that time, he's writing to Christians, he's writing to church people. And he's just reminding them, not, not not to weigh them down, not to give them a sense of guilt, but he's reminding them this is who you were. Don't forget. As you look around at your wicked neighbors and family members, understand it wasn't too long ago you were right there in the thick of them. You were just as wicked and depraved and sensuous and evil as any of them. But you'll notice. Peter points that out. He helps them to understand that they have to be faithful and be faithfully determined to abandon a life of sinful rebellion. If you're going to follow Christ, you can't can't straddle the fence. On Sunday, you have one set of friends and you behave one way. But then Monday through Saturday you switch off and you got a whole set of whole another set of friends who are caught up in the world and engaged in sin. Sunday you got Christian relationships, Monday through Saturday, your relationships are sorted and sinful and you're engaged in all kinds of sinful No, you can't do that, folks. You cannot straddle the the, the fence. You've got to choose to abandon that kind of a lifestyle. And Peter points out why. He in essence says a lifestyle of sin is a horrible waste of precious time and opportunities. Back in chapter 1 and verse 18, talking about their former ways, Peter says your ways were futile. They were aimless. To live a life of sin... And that's for people who are lost. That's for people who are not Christians. People who are living in, 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 in lifestyles that are caught up in sin and, 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 uh, and, and infiltrated with sin. Listen, Peter's saying, look, you've, you've wasted enough time. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime. You've wasted enough of your time in this kind of sinful, sordid living. Got to let go of it. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews reminded the readers of that time that Christians who are running the faith, uh, the race of faith, Christians who are running the faith race, if you will, have to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares and and entangles us, and we must run the race of faith with endurance. Stop wasting our time going back into sinful things. God's people need not spend another minute in sinful ways. I don't care what you say about, oh, well, I got these friends and they like for me to come and hang out with them and party with them. I want to be social because I might be able to save one of them. Uh, listen, let me tell you, dear friend, the chances are they will pull you down a lot faster than you'll pull them up. You make the break. You run away from that kind of a lifestyle. God's people need not spend another minute engaged in sinful vices. Peter calls his believers, the believers, away from unholy and profane living. Get away from that type of living. He says, I think about the words of Apostle Paul over in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, and you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul says it. Peter says it. Listen, you have to stop chasing after that kind of a lifestyle and make a determination to be authentically like Christ. So the challenges that believers face... Number one challenge is first, got to come to grips with the temptation to revert back into old sinful ways. to, To fall back into old sinful relationships. To drift back into old sinful habits. You have to make a determination. Every Christian is challenged day after day because we live in a flesh nature that is bent towards sin. And you have to consciously decide every day, I'm not going back there. I'm not that person anymore. I've been born again, covered by the blood of Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in me. I'm an adopted son or daughter of God. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. But the other challenge that Christians face then and Christians face now who are making the determination to suffer for righteousness sake is the fierce and painful opposition of unsaved family and friends. As I said they still have an influence on you they still have a way of of, of getting their digs in. And so it's interesting as Peter has enumerated all of these horrible demonstrations of sinful wicked living in verse 3. Look what he says in verse 4. In regard to these in other words these kinds of sins they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation they're shocked family members that were your cohorts in sin friends that used to buddy with you and partner with you in sinful habits and parties and orgies and all kinds of cheating and lying and all of that listen your sinful buddies when they find out that you've changed and they see that you really have changed. That there's a radical transformation that's come over you. You have no desire to engage in those kind of activities. You have no desire to be associated with such sinful wickedness. Listen, their response is they don't pat you on the back. So, Oh, hallelujah. That's great. That's great, Charlie. I'm so glad you're a Christian now. Nah. Peter says, they think it's strange. What's the matter with him? What's the matter with old Joe? What what happened to Ellen over there? Good gracious, there's something different about them. I don't know if I like them anymore. Well, understand, understand. Paul has given us a glimpse into the mindset of a unregenerate, unsaved, lost person when they see firsthand evidence of the presence of God. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither does he, because they're foolishness to him. The natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. They're folly to him or her. Neither can he know them or understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So here's why your former friends who are still caught up in sin and, 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 and evil and wickedness and worldliness, this is why they don't understand what's going on in you. Because it's spiritual. And it's foolishness. How You even talk to a, a former lost friend, a, a friend that's engaged, you know, and he's unchristian and, and out there in the world. And you just talk about, well, you know, I like to go to church. What do you do? Oh, we just gather together and we, we pray and we sing and, 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 and I get to give at least 10% of my income to... to, to and they're, they're, What? Are you crazy? I can't go to the game because, you see, that's the time we're going to be worshiping. I don't want to go and, you know, be sitting in a stadium, you know, cheering for a ball team when I could be over here worshiping God. <laughs> What's the matter with you? So, so originally, you know, initially they, they just don't understand because it's a spiritual matter. And their spiritual ignorance has blinded them to understanding the radical change that's going on in your life. And not only will it cause them sometimes to just sit back and question, sometimes they'll begin to tell, you know, rumors about you. They'll start false stories about you. But listen Christians back in the first century understood that eventually that kind of misunderstanding, that kind of ignorance, would eventually lead people to become violent towards them. And it's going on in the world today. I was reading where Tacitus a Roman, first century Roman senator and historian who gives us an account of the crucifixion of Christ and and, and the church and things like that. But this was his, he gives us a perfect illustration of the mindset of the secular mind looking at Christians in that day. This is what Tacitus said about Christians in the first century, these people that Peter is writing to. He said, Christians have a hatred of the human race. They were threatened by Christians. They're like aliens that have landed in the midst of us. And you've got to understand, Christians became the target of criticism, ostracism, and worse, even physical persecution because people were suspicious of them. They resented them. Because, you see, Christians wouldn't bow down in veneration to the pagan gods that were the Roman gods. Christians wouldn't bow down in veneration and worship of the Caesar who was considered to be a god. Now just remember, just kind of place yourself in the secular mindset of first century Rome. Here these people over here. They won't even bow down to the emperor. Be like a group of people showing up at a public gathering and the band plays a national anthem and the flag is flying and, and, and these people Turn their back to the flag. (laughs) Sounds like an NFL football player or something. But anyway. Or when a group is saying a pledge of allegiance to the flag. They don't even. They won't participate. What are are people going to think? They're going to say. Wait a minute. Wait. Are these people. Are they threats? Are they communist? Are they ISIS? They're here in the presence. And, And so this kind of suspicion. Generated persecution towards the church. So. Not only among secular friends, but people were facing this with their families. Family members turning on them. But that's nothing brand new. Should not have shocked even the first of the Christians. Because let me share with you what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel chapter 10. Talking about this. He was forewarning his followers. In chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 34. He said, do not think, it, think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. Jesus laid it out there. When you make a commitment to follow me, and you're serious about it, be ready, because your commitment will divide. You'll lose friends. You'll lose family members. You'll lose jobs. You'll lose social opportunities. Because when people find out that you're truly committed to following after Christ, and you believe in the Bible, and you, 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 you reject all the sinful practices of the culture around you, listen, they see you as weird. They see you as different. They see you as no fun. And at worst, they see you as a threat. Jesus said to his disciples in John fifteen eighteen. Listen, don't marvel that the world hates you. Just know that it hated me first. And the world still, I'm talking about the lost, humanistic, secularistic, atheistic, agnostic world. They still hate him. And they'll hate him till he comes. And even when he comes, they'll hate him and try to fight him. So it shouldn't shock us. That the world reacts towards Christians who choose to follow faithfully after Christ and to live by the principles of the Word of God, you are a spiritual alien to them. says, so wow, I, I really feel uplifted now, Pastor. I'm ready to go home and feel peace in my heart. <laughs> well, I don't want to leave you hanging there, and that's why we're going to move to step three, the third point that I believe Peter brings out after he's shown us the motivation For believers suffering for righteousness. And it helps us to understand the challenges for believers who face suffering for righteousness. There's comfort. There's comfort for believers who are suffering for righteousness. In chapter 4, verse 5, Peter says, They, speaking of those who seek to persecute the church, to criticize, to ostracize, to harm the followers of Christ, the body of Christ, Peter says, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, it's one thing to have somebody say, you're going to be judged by a district court judge, or you're going to be judged by a superior court judge. Or even if they say, you know what? You're going to be judged by the Supreme Court. judge, of justice. But the thing that ought to strike terror in the soul and cause trembling and shaking of knees is when somebody says from the Scripture, you will be judged by the one who judges the living and the dead. There's only one who has that divine authority and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And and, Paul, and Peter says to these followers who will face persecution at the hands of ruthless people, he says these who are persecuting you, they will face the judge of all the ages. The one who judges the living and the dead. So we have the assurance of God's justice towards our sinful adversaries. Persecutors will receive their just punishment. I think Paul and 2 Thessalonians captures this so, so uh, succinctly. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6. He says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, speaking to Christians, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flame and fire taking vengeance on those Who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished. With everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his power. There is a judgment coming. We don't have to take retribution for ourselves. We don't have to defend ourselves. Remember what the Scripture says. He says, do not repay evil with evil. God says, vengeance is mine. All we need to do is keep our eyes on Christ. We need to be a faithful witness. The Scripture doesn't call for us to retreat away from the world. It calls us to separate ourselves from worldly living. But we have a responsibility to go. That's what the Great Commission is. And when we go, when we share the gospel and when we suffer at the hands of those who are enemies of the gospel and are adversaries against the kingdom of God, God says they will be punished. Believers can stand firm in the face of persecution or ostracism knowing that God's divine justice will ultimately prevail. Romans chapter 3, 19, the apostle Paul in essence said, God will shut the mouth. Of every wicked, sinful, ungodly, unregenerate person on the day of judgment. They will try to justify. They will try to excuse. And God will shut their mouth. They will have no defense whatsoever. In the face of perfect justice. Judgment is coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. I got news for those people that somehow have bought into this false philosophical system or thinking of annihilation that think, Oh, when I die, I just stop existing. (laughs) No sweat, no problem, no harm. (laughs) No, I got news for them. Not based upon this. Not based upon the teachings of, of, of John in the book of Revelation when he describes that great white throne of judgment in chapter 20 of Revelation. Listen to what John says. This is the future. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him, speaking of Christ, who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. In other words, you can't hide on the day of judgment, not even the heavens and the earth. He says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. You wonder how in the world can a dead person get judged before a living God. I got news for you. He describes it right here. Because just as God will resurrect our bodies from the dust and, and we are transformed into a beautiful Eternal glorified body. Let me tell you something. On the day of judgment. The great white throne. When Christ will judge the living and the dead. Every living lost unregenerate sinner. Will be brought before the throne of Christ. Every dead person. Look what he says in verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. That means everybody that was buried at sea or died in a shipwreck or drowned or whatever. Hey, the, the sea will give up its dead. Those who are in that temporary place of death in Hades, he said death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in it. Even the, 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 flat, the, the corpses that have rotted and turned to dust will be recomposed and they will be given life. They will be fully alert. They will be with their full senses. They will be keenly aware and stand before Christ. And they were judged each one according to his works. Wow! Oh, Adolf Hitler thought he had it made. As the Allied forces were invading Germany in Berlin and getting ready to, 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 to do the final defeat of Germany, Adolf Hitler, the, the retre- retre- treacherous man that he was, pulled out his pistol, aimed it to the roof of his mouth and blew his brains out. I'm sorry for those of you getting ready to go to lunch. And his thinking was, I'll just kill myself and I, I won't have to face the judgments and the tribunals of the Allied forces. And one day he'll be resurrected, put back together, and he'll stand and face the Son of God, and he will be held accountable for every treacherous, wicked sin he committed as a leader of the third Reich, All the emperors, the Caesars, all the people that have tortured, every member of ISIS that have killed a Christian for the faith, everybody that has done he evil, hideous things, they will be brought before the throne of God. That's what Peter's saying. These who are, are, are torturing you, these who are, uh, who are ostracizing you, these who are persecuting you, they will give an account to him. But that's not the only comfort that Peter leaves us with. He also helps us to understand that when we face suffering for righteousness, we have the awareness of eternal life and rewards that await us. Look at verse 6. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God. God's people fearlessly face judgment, even the judgments of men because of their faith. We just walked through the book of Daniel, and I think about the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they stood before that great... Uh, Babylonian Emperor Nebuchadnezzar, who had, who had constructed this gigantic golden statue out on the plains outside of the city of B- Babylon, and instructed everybody to bow down to worship that. And everybody did. On that massive plain, at the sound of the music, everybody bowed down to worship except three Hebrew young men. And the king was absolutely furious. He was bawling with anger. He called them up there because he knew these men. They were good trusted men that served in the kingdom. And he says, I'll give you one more chance. Boys, if you don't bow down when the music's out, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They can see how hot he was. They can imagine how the furnace was. Listen to the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because you see, they were comforted by God. They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But listen to verse 18 there in chapter 3 of Daniel. But if not, even if he chooses not to, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. We're confident. We're comforted. We are followers of Jehovah God. Our God is the one true living God. He's able to deliver us from a fiery furnace. King! But even if He chooses not to, we still have the comfort of knowing we are in His care. I was on my way to church this morning and I heard a song that was just come out, I guess recently, by one of the contemporary singing groups I like, "Mercy Me," And the name of the song is "Even if." I'm not going to sing it. I just, a couple, I just jotted down a couple of the lines in the chorus. The, the, the singer it says, in the chorus he says, "I know you are able." And he's talking about as he faces the fiery trials, "I know you are able. I know." You can. but even if you don't, my hope is still in you. It is well with my soul. Do you have that comfort? Do you have that kind of reassurance? Do you have that kind of a relationship with God that you can look and in the face of the fiery trials of persecution that comes against you because of your faithfulness to the Lord? can you face the fires of of ostracism and persecution and have a peace deeply abiding in your soul knowing that God is able? He can. But even if He chooses not to deliver you, it is well with my soul. I won't read the text, but Paul in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, writing to Christians who were deeply disturbed because they had loved Christian loved ones who had died and the Lord hadn't come yet. And they were so upset, thinking that these precious loved ones who were Christians would miss the coming of the Lord. And you know that passage where Paul says, I wouldn't have you to grieve as those who have no hope. Because Jesus Christ, who died for you, He's coming again. And, and when He comes, those who have gone ahead of us, He's bringing with Him. And those of us who are alive and remain, we shall be caught up in the air with Him. That caught up in the air, Latin for rapture. We will be caught up to meet Him in the clouds. He's coming. How do Christians face hardship and ostracism, and, and, and suspicion, and rumors, and persecution for living righteous lives. I'll tell you how we know that those who are persecuting us will face judgment, the judgment of God. But more importantly, we know that no matter what, we have a Savior who's promised us He's coming again. As the Bible closes out in Revelation 22, the the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, surely I am coming soon. Do you understand? Any moment, any day, any minute, Christ could come, break forth on the horizon with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet sound, and he will descend with those who've gone before and the multitude of angels and will be raptured, caught up to meet him in the air. He is coming again. Jesus said, surely I am coming soon. And I'm like John. My response is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Even when we face the struggles of the fiery trials, the persecution for righteousness' sake, there's a word of hope given to us right here from a man of God. That it might encourage and inspire and comfort the hearts of the people of God.